No mai haramai, my name is Jeremy, and this is the Maxim Institute Podcast. Last month, we released Rowan Light's latest paper, titled Catching the Tide, New Directions for Youth Need Policy After COVID-19. In it, he talks about the way that economic recessions can create perilous, potentially life-altering challenges for those who are in pivotal transition phases of their life. This means people leaving high school or leaving tertiary training and maybe looking for those first bottom rungs of the career ladder. Rowan notes that if we don't act now to offer specific help to youth in transition, New Zealand runs the risk of creating a lockdown generation with long-term social and economic costs. And this is particularly true for young people who are already defined as neat or not in employment, education or training. Since 2014, there have been between 70 and 90,000 young New Zealanders who are defined as neat in a given year, and of those, around 10% of them are long-term, having been disengaged from work or training or education for six months or longer. In June this year, already, the proportion of youth neets has nudged up by about 2%. Now, the government's job creation policies that they've already announced don't seem to offer specific help for youth in long-term patterns of neat, and young New Zealanders lack a clear map to navigate their way out. They need sustained support to become work ready. So joining us on the podcast to talk about this process of helping young people navigate their way into the world of work is Ryan Donaldson, the General Manager of Whangarei Youth Space, or WISE. Rowan's research flagged up WISE as a brilliant example of a community organization that is answering this complex question well, with pastoral care and long-term investment in the young people that they are serving. To read Rowan's paper with his full recommendations, you can head to our website, maxim.org.nz, and you can keep listening for my conversation with Rowan and Ryan. Starting with you, Rowan, what what is it about the transitional period between the teenage years and our young adult years that's so crucial to get right? I mean, you've done this research. What did you find that makes this period so unique? Well, I suppose when we think about young people, we have a lot of hope for our young people because we, it's, it's a bit of a platitude but they, to say that they are our, our future. So we know that and then we can reflect on our own experiences. Uh, we've all been a young person and we've all been in that stage of life when we go from being a child uh, who's kind of under the care of our parents and our, our mentors and our guardians and our teachers and the the, those important people in our lives and when we, we start to make the steps to becoming uh, I suppose ultimately what we hope to be as, as an adult um, and there's this interesting little in-between period of, of, of kind of young adulthood um, which as you've kind of identified there in your intro um, can be connected to education um, and also kind of uh, a period of time in our life when we st- we, we uh, look to kind of yeah transition into to take on more responsibility, perhaps through um, employment, perhaps through new relationships. It's a period of life which I think we opt we want to be a bit op- we like to be optimistic about. It's an exciting time. It's full of op- opportunities and possibilities, and we encourage young people to think about what are they going to be, what are, what's their what sort of roles are they going to step into as 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 young New Zealanders? What happens, and what I kind of explore in the paper is kind of essentially what what are some of the dangers when those opportunities kind of dry up? The paper's title is "Catching the Tide," and that was one that you were sort of really passionate about in our in our comms process. Can you can you explain why the tide was something that really caught your imagination around around this whole area? Yeah, I do, I do like a like a bit of a metaphor. I suppose it's my my arts background. One of the well, one of the actually turns um, in Te Reo Māori for young people is um, taiohi, uh, and and taiohi coming from the um, basically the root of that word coming from tai, um, referring to basically like the if we can imagine the the, the tidal forces uh, around 
around our islands. Um, so the ebb and flow of the tide. And I quite like that imagery of, of young people as kind of in a, in a time, in a, in a time of life when they are changing. They're going from one to the to the other. And which is, I think, what we hope for for our young people. We hope that they, they do transition into kind of a new role in, in society. Um, and that, that transition might be marked through finishing education, perhaps graduating, completing an apprenticeship, perhaps um, entering into full-time work, perhaps, but also relationships and many other ways that we kind of um, want to signal that transition to adulthood. Um, and so Catching the Tide is really about identifying both the opportunity and the excitement that comes from from being a young adult, but also the way in which that's such a really crucial time for our young people. Because if they miss those opportunities, and if they don't have a clear transition from being um, a child, so under the care of, of, of a guardian or a mentor or a, um, or a, their parents or teachers, to take sort of coming into their own and, and and finding their own sense of freedom and their own sense of purpose. And the, actually the ability to, to support themselves as well. Absolutely. Because that sense of catching mm. the tide, I mean, you know, even, I mean, I'm not a surfer, but body surfing, there's a definite sense of, you know, when you actually catch that wave that, that brings you in um, and there's that power behind you and you sort of feel that momentum or if you just lose it and you slip off the back or you get totally like um, just wiped out by the wave, you know, the, these are all things that can happen for young people. And and when we see the number of youth needs, in, that's kind of a, a sort of a statistic that expresses the young people who haven't necessarily been lifted by this experience or this this moment in their life where they should hopefully be lifted into kind of uh, connections into work, connections into um, having skills that allow them to work, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it's really thinking in terms of um, like employment's an easy kind of uh, way to measure that transition, but it's it's kind of what sits underneath employment as well. It is those relationships and it's the the connections and the kind of habits and attitudes that come with work, which we can talk a bit about. Um, so I suppose, yeah, we, we I, I wanted to emphasise in that title the kind of urgency as well. That exactly what what it means to be when uh, whether you're whether you're into sailing or swimming or um, when you miss the tide, you're you're kind of really stuck and you can't. It's and really kind of locked out for a while. Exactly, um, and certainly we've been talking a lot about thinking about the lockdown and how it's affected. Um, all all manner of, of communities and groups of New Zealanders, um, but certainly um, some a lot of the international data is, is stresses the the particular impact on young people and that we are f- substantially um, facing a, a kind of lockdown generation. It, what's interesting about this is Rowan, you were actually part of this cohort, this young cohort that was in this transitional stage of life during the last recession, the GFC in two thousand eight two thousand nine. Um, Obviously, you now have employment. <laughs> you are working here. I guess my question is, what did you see for your friends and your peer group um, that was different from, say, my peer? I mean, I, I graduated around 2003, 2004, um, or high school at least, and didn't have that kind of, um, those, those gaps of opportunities um, that, that maybe you did. So can you just describe what that um, feeling was like when you could sense that things were going to be different for you guys? Yeah, and that that was part of the I think the personal appeal of the topic. Um, in fact, I think the class of twenty twenty are actually facing such bigger challenges. So in some ways, the the GFC and the kind of the global recession uh, kind of pales in comparison. Um, but certainly, yeah, it's very interesting, Jeremy. You mentioned there kind of even the co the cohorts before 
2008, 2009, and even the ones after um, were much less impacted. So there was a real clear impact. Um, fortunately, in New Zealand, we've actually had some really, really interesting research done on those cohorts. Um, so those born in 1991, 1990, and how that compares to, say, even those who came, who graduated from school a few years later, around uh, those who'd born, been born in 1994. So I suppose we, what happened... Um, the New Zealand um, statistics identified kind of six big impacts that we can, which draws a lot of which we can see a lot of parallels with with 2020. So um, work disappeared. So a lot of work opportunities disappeared. What does that look like? What what does work opportunities disappearing look like? If we can imagine areas like retail, um, you know, retailers closing or, or, or reducing hours, um, tourism. Um, being impacted, say in 2020, we can see see that being a really major um, part of the recession. If we can, uh, you know, we've we've all got stories as maybe school leavers or, or those like sort of late senior high school years, and we can think back to our first job and how crucial that was because it's really hard for a young person who hasn't worked to to be able to get that early job. The the, the employer, um, an employer, kind of takes a bit of a risk uh, on bringing on a on a on a green kind of young worker, um, but we, those those opportunities are crucial, aren't they? Because if without that first initial kind of piece of, of experience on your CV, um, it can be really hard later on to actually convince employers to we give you... You don't really have anything on your CV. Yeah, yeah. You, and you can only get so far on a great sort of personality and, and sort of teamwork. Uh, so basically one thing which comes through in, in this sort of reflections on, on the, the GFC and, and, and people my age who are leaving school was how it affected people unevenly. And that's one, a crucial kind of lesson, I think, for 2020, is that some people, young people will be okay and they'll manage. Um, and But those who are already in difficult economic situations, so for example, those leaving school in, at the end of the 2000s, their parents um, were the, had actually been, um, were more likely to have experienced um, economic difficulty from the recessions in the 1990s. So there's kind of, there's definitely generational aspects to this. It's not just about what COVID, say in 2020, what COVID-19, how COVID-19 has affected people, but it's actually like those broader trends in unemployment and an economic recession that we see compounding. New Zealand is um, already in vulnerable communities um, in vulnerable um, situations will be will be the ones who are really impacted. So I think of myself, I was fortunate that I had you know, my grandfather, who who is a uh, kind of community leader in in the in this area that I grew up in, in Auckland, and he was able to get me a um, a jo- like a, a job in the local school, uh, just being just mowing the lawns and and earning some good money, and it just gave me some good experience and good connections, and I was able to get that role because of my because of family and because of those social networks that supported me. But not all New Zealanders will have those opportunities. Not all of them will have. A mentor figure who can step in and has the time who to, to do that. Um, so I was fortunate. Many New Zealanders won't have those opportunities. Another difference that we could draw out between the GFC and, and today is is the opportunity to actually uh, go overseas. So actually, there was a uh, certainly a small group of New Zealand young New Zealanders who, after two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, and this actually I can uh, think of a lot of um, people in my cohort who who took that opportunity. They went to Australia um, to. So we have those kind of um, valves on our economy, um, which we can, which 
we've historically New Zealanders have been able to draw on. Go to the UK, go to do a gap year, find opportunity somewhere else. Yeah, and and so of course what we those opportunities are not there for in 2020 because those because of the border the border um, restrictions. Ryan, you're uh, really passionate about, the, obviously, you have devoted your life um, and, and what you're doing at the moment for quite a while to this transitional space, this time where young people are kind of finding their feet, finding who they are and, 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 and looking to sort of step out on their own. How did you get into this space and, and, and what makes you so passionate about it? Interesting hearing from Rowan's own journey as well, you know, in terms of those mental relationships, because essentially that's what shaped me in this direction going forward. So, so I grew up in Whangarei, just a little bit south of Whangarei, a place called um, Ruakaka. Um, there's a beach there, and it's pretty well known to a lot of Aucklanders, so <laughs> you have a lot of people coming up in the summer holidays. Um, but essentially, I, when I was about 15, I found out I was going to become a, a parent, which is a you know a d- different story story altogether. But essentially, I um, moved into Whangarei with my um, with my partner, who's now my wife, living with her mum. So obviously, dropped out of school, moved into a, a big sort of town in comparison to Ruakaka, which is, is one sort of shop, and <laughs> that's what you've sort of got. Um, but here, I found myself as an as a neat essentially. So I wasn't going to school. Um, you know, I, I was saying I wanted to work um, more to the fact that because that's what my parents have done, that's how you sort of, as a role of a father, you provide for your family. So I really had that installed into me then I need to find a sort of direction where I can get some work or whatever and school didn't feel like the right thing for me. Anyways, essentially my my daughter was born how many, you know, months down the road um, and I'd done little odd bits of work experience but I didn't really find, you know, I I, I did a building, uh, I did some like a camera hand role for, you know for about six weeks or something like that but it just didn't feel mean and that's probably because I'm not practical enough to understand <laughs> <laughs> that the natures and the complications of, of actually building a house um so that wasn't for me essentially I found myself you know still at home um my daughter was born by then and um my partner actually got a role she was really you know keen to become a midwife after going through childbirth and then just having that support for her throughout that process and that's really what set her on that pathway but I didn't quite find mine yet back to I can't remember what year it is now I was I think I was yeah 16 and I had a visit one day from a local social worker um, who was just I'd never met him before he's an English or Welsh guy um, moved over here quite recently with his partner um, they're about to have a baby um and he was really keen to set up a young, well not a young dad's group, but a, a dad's program to support dads, essentially. Um, it was a pilot program. Hadn't done it before. Essentially, what happened is he threw a whole bunch of us sort of dads, and I was the youngest one by far, and I was in this group with Black Power members and all, you, all sorts of things. It was really, really interesting, but you actually, we, we bonded. It was a really cool experience. But what happened is he, he took me under his wing, and I was really reluctant to even go along to these programs. And I see a lot of the stuff, when we're talking about NEETs, is that, you know, the, I think the biggest thing is motivation and, and incentive. And so I had no motivation whatsoever to even join this this course or this workshop. And so, I, you know, I, I did. He sold me. There was food there and it was a good excuse to get out of the house so, away from my mum-in-law for a bit who was nagging me about getting a job and, you know, all these sort of things. So actually that was my space and became my space. And that's kind of where I felt, actually, this is really cool, this experience. So I stayed with it and I was just, you know, really keen to learn. I helped it as much as I could and... He actually said, you know, would you, uh, you know, really have loved having you part of this program. I think I became his favorite quite soon because I was just always helping out. Um, and he, he took me under his wing to run and facilitate the next program. But I think the real big thing was that there was this guy who, and I've had multiple people in my life do this, like have just come out of nowhere, 
and just offered a hand up. I didn't know him from Bar of Soap, you know, but he, he just came into my life and he just saw something in me. Just He just wanted to give me these opportunities to connect with my community, to sort of do things that, that for me, create a purpose. Um, and, you know, I loved it. And, and to this day, like, I'm really good friends with him. I meet him for a coffee once a month and just talk about work. He's a manager of a different service now, and so he's been able to witness my journey. So he's become this almost lifelong mentor to me, and he sort of set me in the pathway of becoming a social worker. Essentially, that's how I sort of got involved with it. And then through that process, we got, I got involved in the setup of, it was a community project then, where it was talking about, you know, setting up more youth development opportunities in Whangarei. One of the key things that came out of that was we wanted, you know, from the voices of the young people, and I was about 17 at this time, um, we wanted our own space in Whangarei. At the time, there was nothing. If you wanted to go with a game of pool, you had to go to a pub with a parent. You know, there was just nothing really there. The other place that we could essentially go to get support or hang out was the library. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't well utilised. I so, mean, no shade to libraries. No, 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 no. no. Oh, no. man, they amazing have, resource. <laughs> they don't have pool tables. <laughs> they don't have pool tables, and you can't make the most noise in there too. So for young people, it's probably not their ideal place. But at that time, it's probably around 2011, 2012, Suicides was going on the rise and it was well documented. Everyone was talking about the suicides. At that time, I was working at the hospital through my journey. I ended up working at the local hospital and the mental health unit, funny enough. Um, but I was still involved in this youth space project. And so, you know, suicides, there was a lot of talk about suicides. There was a lack of support for young people in Whangarei and all these sort of things just, you know, came together essentially and snowballed. And so the project really started you know, kicking off for this dedicated youth space in Whangarei, um, in the CBD. And so there was a youth group, about 12 of us in this youth group, and I was the chairperson at the time. I don't know why. I think it's just because I was probably the oldest in the group. Um, and alongside that, there was a, a series of organisations from around Whangarei that were really keen to support this project. And essentially, we all came together, and it just snowballed from there, and Whangarei Youth Space was born. Um, and I stepped into the, the role of trustee. So I've had this long journey with youth space, and that's kind of really really what got me started and I guess for me the biggest thing is the real community development aspect of the role as well not necessarily just for young people but you know for our community of Whangarei I can just see a lot of stuff where we can do things a lot smarter and, and improve our community by by working really well together so that's something I'm really passionate about doing too going forward. When you say community development, I mean, you have an idea in your head of what that means. What are you, like, community development, developing from what to what? Yeah. Like, what is, what is the problem you see and what are you, what's the vision you hold for it? I think the vision is that our community have the answers to solve the problems that's lying in the community, you know? And I think for Whangarei in particular, we look to our government organisations to save us, to bail us out of, you know, situations all the time. And you hear it often, um that the community have the answers and they just need to they just need to be able to voice those um, and, and in a space that's supportive enough to be able to be heard from, whether it's government or... At the time when we were sitting the Youth Space Project up, the big thing really was, for years, as young people have been saying, we would love to have a support service, a, a dedicated space that we could just go and hang out with and connect with our friends or, you know, access free health support or whatever. But, you know, and that's all just been filed along in a cabinet somewhere. It's a great idea at the time, and then someone's moved into a different role and nothing's sort of eventuated from that. So really, for me, the biggest catalyst that, that happened and, and why Youth Space is a success and why I'm so proud of it is because as young people, we sort of voiced what we wanted, and it came to life through the support of these adults that really gave a damn about what these young people wanted and actually made it happen for us. Um, so I think there's that real, you know, that's kind of brings it back to now, you know, in terms of actually we, we can by working together, actually make huge change for ourselves and make a bit long-lasting impact. It's almost—it's almost like it's—it's it's talking to young people, yeah. not just about about young people. Oh, exactly, exactly. And I think that's that's something that I'm, you know, 
really passionate about driving as well, even to this day. The big thing about youth space is that, um, and really what sets us apart, is that half of our board of, of trustees are young people, 18 to 24. So again, that whole thing of not trying to lose the voice of young people. We didn't want to set up an organisation for youth, run by adults, <laughs> you know, that, that, that just lost the relevancy and, and really what made us different. So I think, yeah, definitely, it's, it's just, it's, that's how it should be. And a lot of the stuff we do is around youth adult partnerships as well and the reciprocation of the knowledge base from, you know, young people being able to share to adults, actually, this is really what's relevant these days. This is what we're thinking. This is how you guys can stay on top of your game by, by hearing us. But also, you know, to counteract that, there's a lot of knowledge in there that young people, we, we're not so receptive to hear. Um, I'm not, I say we, I'm 27 now, but, you know, we, we, well, there's that naiveness and stuff that, you know, but actually when you start to have those communications and a lot of it comes down to those mentoring relationships where actually you see value on that person saying to you, so you're going to listen to it and actually work with them to receive a set outcome or something. There's real beauty in that relationship, eh? I think in Māori, that's tōkanatēna, it's a very similar model approach where, you know, the old take on the young to sort of teach them the ways so they can replace them eventually. And there's that sort of reciprocal process there. I think that's, yeah, it's really awesome. Obviously, you started out with the sense of let's, you know, young people want a space. Yeah, they want yeah. pool. They want, you know, they, they want right. they want a place that they can go right. to in town. Um, obviously, now you're doing a lot more. So right. what, how, what was the, you know, A, what do you do, <laughs> um, particularly in this kind of transition to work and education and all that sort of stuff? Um, and, and how did that eventuate? Definitely. So um, Whangarei Youth Space operates as a one-stop youth shop, essentially. So I think you could, you could think of it as the information hub for what youth services are happening in Whangarei for the community. So young people can go there, whanau could go there. You know, maybe there's a, a young person that's just moved to Whangarei and they don't know, you know, what potential courses are out there, what work employment opportunities are out there. They can actually sign up to access our free healthcare from a nurse and a GP, um, totally free for 12 to 24-year-olds. So essentially there's that hub aspect to it, that sort of drop-in model where there's no wrong door, you can walk in there and get support and, and walk out of there feeling, okay, I, I've got some direction going forward. That's our, that's our goal at the end of the day, to support young people in that aspect. But... So yeah, we, we got that youth space, which is cool, um, and we've got youth workers that sort of work in there. We do after-school programs, holiday programs, and stuff like that. It's great. But then I think this has kind of opened, opened up the opportunity for us to look at the community again and say, actually, how can we make that bigger change for our community? So that's really where, for me personally, why Start came into play when the opportunity came up is that we've been working with NEETS for years. You know, because we have a drop-in space of young people, we get all sorts of young people coming in, homeless youth, just people coming in for a first feed of the day, essentially, on their way to school, you know. So we see all sorts of young people coming in for our doors, um, all the way to prefects and stuff that's just coming here to find some quiet space to just do their homework. Um, but with NEETS in particular, I guess what we had sort of witnessed and noticed was that there had been a lot of government initiatives focused on getting NEETS off the benefit, and into either a course or into a job. But for us working on in the community space, we would see that 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 I suppose it was like a wheel. So they'll they'll join into a program, you know, they'll they'll be in there for a few months and then they come back and they're straight back on the dole again. So while it might look good to MSD or whatever, and this is not to throw any shade towards MSD, but I guess we're seeing the people and they might be seeing the potential outcomes at the time. So, you know, it might look great that there's less needs statistically, but that's just because they're in a program or a course where they're essentially a bum on a seat. For a certain amount of time. For a certain amount of time. And then they find themselves back in the same situation again. They might have a, you know, certificate in a hair and beauty course. Um, but then again, they're back on the same boat in terms of trying to find work. And so they might sign to a different course and do something else to try and open those opportunities up. 
But some of the underlying stuff that we're seeing and what we had been seeing up until we sort of started Wisestar, and it's still not perfect today, but is that, again, that motivation for young people. Actually, you speak to them, a lot of them are happy on the doll. They're happy just receiving money from, you know, they're happy living with their parents. So they're, they're doing that because there's no motivation. They can't see the other side yet. Um, the purpose, you know, so... And when we speak about employment, I guess that's the ultimate outcome or end goal of that transition to adulthood is that they're now being independent enough to be able to bring in their own revenue and stuff. They're not, they're not reliant on mum, they're not reliant on the government and stuff. You know, that's the ultimate end goal, ideally. But again, they might be in a job for six weeks that could fall through and then they're back on the dole again. There's some of those key life lessons that they just haven't been taught. Um, you know, a key one is like financial man- manage personal management. Even I struggle with that, you know, and I, I guess part of that as well is maybe it's the, the income that they're receiving. It isn't, isn't that actually high compar- in comparison to what they, you know, I, I think about solo mums, for example, that we support now. And if they were to work, actually, I don't know if that's going to be, you know, maybe it's a few $30 extra a week, but for them, there's also the stresses of childcare and all that sort of stuff as well. So it's like, there's just the circle that it's just really hard to get off. And a lot of that comes from those underlying issues, the whānau engagement, you know, really what is the family support for these young people like? While the, the boss might fire them because they haven't been showing up to work, what they don't understand is that, you know, this young person in particular has been homeless for three nights a week because mum's kicked them out and she doesn't want to see her again. You know, stuff like that, that real tangible problems in our community that it's just not getting answered is no one's really picking it up because at the end of the day it's just throwing them into employment because that makes it the world a better place but there's a lot of stuff that just needed to happen firstly yeah. and you don't you don't solve someone being homeless by sending them on a skills course no that's right like that, that's, a, that that's a social that's right. you know a personal social yeah. issue that, that requires almost a level of friendship that's right yeah. to care about like yeah. hey where are you yeah. sleeping tonight exactly. or how are you getting your next meal exactly. like and you that, and you mentioned it before Ryan in terms of the the community has the answers, and and that's because, of course, the community uh, is are those people are people around that young person um, who are able to identify, perhaps. See, whereas where a government agency will struggle to yes. identify those most yeah. in need, because by definition they've fallen through the gaps, so exactly. to speak. Um, they're not on the grid. Maybe they're on a, the a, the benefits is one way to kind of measure, but some, maybe they're not, or maybe they're kind of in and out. Well, and also you say, I mean, the community has the answers, but that's because you can actually belong to a community, yeah. right? And and belonging, you know, with belonging comes love, it comes care, it comes people actually, you know, giving a damn about where you're sleeping tonight, or you know, hey, you might have behaved incredibly atrociously, but you're still one of us, and so therefore we have a responsibility to you. Um, like those things are intangible. Um, and they can't be kind of devolved to a to a program, right? Talking about why start? Like, yes. what what do you do with um, you know, why start as your sort of program for NEETs or for young people who are looking for engagement and and how to get into training, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, how do you identify when yeah. when someone needs why start, and then and then what do you do with them? Yeah, I'll backtrack a little bit. So I guess why start really was when the opportunity for us to go for this. And, and to be honest, in talking about funding, I suppose for NGO and for most communities, for example, funding is the key issue. Uh, and it can be in terms of things like when HPR was announced and... HPR, what, sorry. Sorry, hippo to marangatahi. Um, when, when, when that sort of funding became available to us, I guess that enabled us to really think a little bit out of the box in terms of how would we approach... What, what would something that we could do to make a small amount of difference? And sorry, I'm going to ask you to explain yes. a little bit. Hippo te marangatahi, what is it? essentially is... Um, yeah, no, 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 it's all good. So essentially, my understanding of it, <laughs> I'll be quite careful, is that 
essentially when the PGF was established, the provincial go fund, one of the, the things that they identified especially was in some of the rural areas of, of the regions of New Zealand was that it's great to sort of throw these this money out here to create these jobs and employment stuff, but they identified that the young people actually need a bit of support in terms of that space too. So my understanding is that Hipota Marangate was established to sort of address address that that problem of actually how do we support young people to get into work sustainable work Rowan you might know a little bit more about that than me but um that's so that's my understanding of it I guess for us it, it was it made funding available where we had not been able to get that funding before essentially and, and it enabled us to create a program from scratch that really was was for me being involved in this sort of youth sector for how many years it was one of the things I identified that you know actually we can't just throw young people at work and expect them to just be in sustainable employment it's not going to work out what the young people really need I sort of talked on before is those real foundational and just basic basic life skills basic um you know how to build your confidence up have they even got a birth certificate or a bank a bank account you know often we're finding young people they're going to work the money's going straight into their partner's account or their mum's account and they're not seeing a dime of it <laughs> so I think there's a few things there that we just need to get Right, and that's essentially covering the basics first. So our program is really looking at creating these, you know, they're called Kayarahi or Navigators. I've just been to Armageddon recently. Essentially what the dream was is that we're creating these sort of superheroes for these commu- for the community, for young people, to take a small cohort of young people, up to 40 over the two years, to do some really intensive pastoral care engagement. So essentially taking a young person, meeting them where they're at. So maybe they're at work and income at a seminar and we meet them or they're just a referral or they just come through the doors at youth space um, and they just want to work you know we'll take them through the basics of okay so where you at in life at the moment like do you have a safe space to sleep do you have some of the basic fundamental needs of, of a person all the way to transition them into okay so we, we can talk about jobs what is it what does your dream job look like and what is it going to take for you to get there and, and, and I guess that's the key thing there. We're not just trying to throw them into work. We really want to support this young person to be on a sustainable pathway going forward, whether that's work or whether that's actually signing up to a, a course at, at North Tech, which is one of our local polytechnics, um, to do mechanics if that's what they really want to do or to link them in with a local employer that can potentially take them, you know, um, take them on kind of like an apprenticeship or just to do some work experience each week. That's kind of where, where that program was at. Um, essentially, that was really born from my own experiences as a young person, knowing that, you know, I've had these key mentors in my life that have just given a damn about me and supported me and actually walked the journey with me, um, rather than just saying, you need to be at this place over here at this time. They'll actually pick me up in the morning, drive me there, sit in the interview with me, actually talk to me and debrief with me afterwards, and just let me be able to unpack and actually understand the way of the world, essentially. That was really what the core of Start is all about, essentially. Rowan, going from Whangarei right out, you know, right out to all of New Zealand again. I mean, you know, we were talking before about, you know, the, this this cohort and the the COVID response um, and, and essentially how, how much we might expect that COVID might be a, sort of a magnitude greater in terms of the problems for this co- cohort of young people. How have the government, as one sort of part in the puzzle, how have the government responded to COVID in, in ways that might specifically help young people in this, in this transitional phase? Well, one thing that they the government has did commit to in the the, the 2020 budget was an expansion of um, Her Potama Rangatahi. So I think, and that's something in the paper that we highlighted, because it is something really to support and to encourage, um, which is something which is a, has been a quite a different approach than than has been taken by previous governments, because it is about equipping those on the ground close close to young people and giving them the means which I think is a great role for the government to play 
um, rather than some of the previous kind of infrastructure that we've seen around youth NEAT, uh, which have been, Ryan highlighted the focus on, on taking getting young people off the benefits, which is a very specific way of kind of uh, reading kind of youth outcomes and also kind of measure, that is to say measuring outcomes and it's 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 a it serves a certain purpose um but it's as ryan again highlights it's not it doesn't actually address necessarily long-term outcomes and that's probably a recurring problem with government uh, programs the big government programs is that it's very difficult for um, an agency which is set up um, and is given is incentivized to help uh, this identified kind of category of, of young people youth needs to transition from from the, in this sort of cycle, from for them to then walk with them after. I mean, they they, they know they sort of finish them and leave them at the door and say off you go. It's I guess by definition, a sort of a government department needs to have measurements and accountabilities, and it's just yeah. like, are your measurements going up or down? Yes. Um, yeah. And if you're working on a national level, it's like, well, we need these measurements to be going down. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And so even a lot of the good, some there's been some good work around. Um, the Māori Pacific and Pacific um, training schemes, which have have done really well to attend to come at some of the more specific kind of conditions and circumstances that, say, Māori and Pacifica youth face, and uh, some of the kind of cultural and social kind of context of of their lives. But even then, it's very hard for once you've completed a set training for them. You know, young people need support. Usually, it's a pe- for a period of, of up to sort of six months in a new role where they're sort of. As Ryan says, they're learning the habits, they're learning um, the, the techniques and the strategies of dealing with people, working with people, um, financial sort of matters, you know, um, you know, filling out timesheets correctly um, is, a, is, is something which, I don't know, you don't just pick up. It's not, exa- it's not just something you can assume people know um, how to do. So there's all these little tricky things and, and per- it's a period of transition. So in the paper we highlighted as, as getting work ready and it's work readiness and that is a process it's a process it's not just something that happens on day one and it's often kind of difficult and, and fraught and by nature is going to have problems and, and teething issues and uh, miss full of mishaps so those are things that I think like wise is good at, at helping identifying and, and working through some of those challenges I guess when we're approaching this next season of um, a kind of New Zealand's economic uh, performance uh, and, and looking ahead, there's, there's the getting young people work ready. So that's solving a problem that is kind of always there, right? You've got young people who, I mean, like my parents did, you know, I, I think about the fact that, you know, everything that Ryan's talking about, my parents just sort of did that as part of raising me. And, and but that's not everyone's experience. And so there's always going to be this gap between, you know, people who are sort of high performing because of the community that they grew up in and people who kind of missed out on those things. And so lifting up young people to give them those experiences um, that they might have missed out on for whatever reason, um, that's always going to be the case. So there's don't worry Ryan you're always going to have a job um, <laughs> but I guess what we're talking about here uh, with with COVID and and, and pro- previously with the GFC there's a there's a supply of job question as well um, so you you know there was a um, I remember Rowan you sort of in one of your op-eds talked about the fact that there were you know uh, early on in the lockdown there were these sort of lovely sort of human interest piece stories about you know the the Air New Zealand pilot who got a job stocking shelves for uh, for a supermarket and it was like hey he, he managed to find a job um, and and you were kind of like well yeah but what about the sort of 16 year old who that would have been their first job 
in, in your research, what have you sort of canvassed as ways that the government can make sure that when we have a shrinking supply of jobs that, you know, young people actually have the ability to, to sort of get that leg up on the career ladder when the bottom rungs have been taken out? Yeah, and I suppose there's, there has been a kind of dominant assumption that's um, we talk about the workforce and these waves of unemployment and young people is, are, are kind of nestled in, in the, those waves of unemployment and there's a lot of assumptions that they will like other the rest of the workforce kind of muddle through um, and adapt and pivot to new. But the problem you've highlighted is that um, young people don't have the experience, they don't have the connections, they don't have the background to, to pivot. So part of what the paper tr- argues is, is sim- quite simply we need to actually stop and think about the very specific needs that young people have, that they can't be thought of as just like any other workforce, part of the workforce. Yeah, I suppose um, part of it is creating the better connections between groups of young people, uh, communities, um, these kind of intergenerational relationships that we've seen, and businesses in specific localities. And I think something that we wanted to highlight in the paper, and it comes through in the different kind of case studies that we explore, is that um, when you give communities this, the the sense of ownership that they they need to feel about this about this issue, um, that we can often think, oh well, the government needs to fix this, but actually, we we as New Zealanders, all New Zealanders, should feel uh, responsibility, and and I think something we wanted to encourage in the paper through exa- by drawing on examples like Wise and um, also other case studies before before the GSC and and Otarahanga and and um, in the last couple of years in places like Tauranga, um, where communities have taken ownership and they've, instead of looking for external solutions, they've looked for solutions within within their community, within the businesses and within the, the opportunities within that community. The fact that we have Ryan sitting here with us here today kind of tips off that we think that what he's doing is probably a good thing. Ryan, you know, if you're if, if someone is listening to this today and they're like, oh man, I've got you know, um, you know, my my teenagers are about to leave school and they seem supremely unmotivated and 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 lack hope around you know being able to find a job or being able to find an internship exp- um, opportunity like their older brother or sister might have a few years ago. What for you, having worked with young people and and sort of you know zeroing in on that purpose kind of discussion? What would you recommend people? You know, how how do they start that conversation and and what opportunities should they be looking for? It's funny, I was just listening and sort of reflecting on the conversation and I guess thinking about young people in general really feels like that despite COVID, I think that's 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 really given us opportunity to really take another look at actually how society is going at the moment in terms of the employment market and stuff. And it's actually said, look, this has come, the bubble's burst. This is where we're at. What do we need to do to sort of change? I, but I think, you know, we're talking about stuff that's been going on for, for years. And I was just reading the paper. I mean, it's been underlying some of the issues and challenges of needs and that young people have been going through. It's been around for years. And I, I just think that the, the key thing really is the motivation. And so I, my advice, I guess, for parents or for anybody that's, that's working alongside young people is, you know, Treat it by case by case basis. Every young person's different. Everyone's got different sort of motivations, and everyone's got different incentive factors that need to be considered in terms of what decisions they make. I'm also really aware that young people, you know, can be quite naive at times, and that sometimes, you know, the avenues that um, have been in place before, such as you know, dads always worked at a at butchery, for example, or you know, dads a welder, or mums always worked at um, 
at the bank or she's running her own business or whatever, sometimes young people won't want to do that. <laughs> I really get that and I hear that often. You know, we'll say here's a job here. Um, you know, it's you know, it's pretty good money. It's a great opportunity for you to, to get some experience and whatever it is. But for whatever sake and reason a young person would not like to do that. Rather they know they can make money on YouTube playing Fortnite. <laughs> and that's much more attractive to them. You know, exactly, TikTok, which I guess puts everyone in, it's because it's changing and it feels like the paradigm has sort of changed and young people want to be the change makers, we want to be innovative, we want to be the ones leading these new ideas and trends and stuff like that, that actually what our parents are saying to us, it, it gets filtered through all that other stuff, the culture of today, you know, you know, I reflect that parents didn't have to subscribe to Netflix and everything like that when they were younger, so it was much easier for them to really see where the money's going in terms of that financial management and stuff where as a young person they're trying to keep up the latest iPhone all these latest trends and it's not just young people from sort of you know reasonably well-off backgrounds or middle backgrounds you know it's it's the young people that I'm working with that you know don't have very strong parenting um, involved in their lives or they don't have some real key supports but they're staying up to date with the latest cultural trends and I guess that's where it creates the issue so I guess my advice sorry back to the question is that it's really working with the young person on the motivation and what supports can you put in place to wrap around them to get them to a really good place to go forward. And that could be, again, work, or it could be actually looking at some different study options or actually getting outside of the, the norm to explore different opportunities that might like them, um, them they, they might like. Yeah, I know it's real basic. But yeah. What's it like? I mean, you know, I'm sure you would have had these kind of conversations where a young person, you know, doesn't actually have much of a vision for yeah. what the future yeah, can look yeah, like often, for them. Like, often. and yeah. how do you how do you progress that conversation yeah. and go, hey, actually, I can see how your life could go. Mm-hmm. Um, can I invite you into that's a right. bit of this vision? Like, that's what right. what what does that look like? Yeah, well, I mean, that's what happened to me. Like, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. <laughs> I'm sure everyone says I still don't know now, but I literally my purpose was to just get up. Um, my, my daughter went to daycare. She'll go to daycare, and I'll just play xbox all day that was what i wanted to do you know so it wasn't until someone invited me into um a line of work that they were doing and i just got involved voluntarily that i said oh well this has actually opened up a new window for me to say actually this might be what i want to do with my life going forward so i guess yeah taking advantage of those opportunities to and it might just be saying actually you know i noticed that my son's um he likes to build or something like that. So I might try and link him in with a local builder to just see if he's got some work that he could take him under his wing. You know, he doesn't have to pay him, but just to give him a few days. Um, and the incentive is that, I don't know, maybe he gets some money from his parents in the week. I don't know. I mean, there's incentives for everything, but I guess it's just, it is that exactly. It's trying to show and create opportunities for them that they wouldn't be able to navigate for themselves, yeah. essentially. And that's a role that either a youth worker could do, a parent could do, as you are saying before, you know. I guess at the end of the day, that's what we need to do as a community is, is really make the most of those opportunities and, and just take them. And what was the difference for you between someone who came along and been like, hey, Ryan, like you're not going to spend another day playing Xbox. You know, that's just lame. Like yeah. get off the couch and do some work. Yeah, yeah. And you're being like, stuff off. Playing Xbox is way more fun. <laughs> And this invitation that you had from a guy who was like, hey, come and, come and, come and do this yeah. thing. I mean, what was it about his approach that made you go, oh, that seems like something I want to do? To be honest, I didn't want to go. You know, I didn't want to go because it's, here I, I was like 15. I didn't have any friends. I was literally, it was just me and my, my partner and her mum and my baby. 
but that was my bubble. I was happy with that. I was content. You know, I didn't know. I didn't want to go into public. I didn't want to catch the bus. Was a huge task. That anxiety that, and I think that's on the rise now more than ever for young people. Is that anxiety having to just navigate the world? It's just so hard now, especially with everything else that's been going on, social media and all those different things in terms of connectivity with people. That it, it, it scared me to say I don't want to sit in this room full of strangers. You know, but I think what really what it was for me was. Um, he didn't give up, <laughs> you know, like it, he came around, he said, do you would like to do this? And I said, oh yeah, I don't know, maybe, probably not. He followed up. So I think a few days later, he came around and brought me like a hot chocolate and some food and just built that rapport. And that was really the key thing was like, okay, I feel like, you know, this guy's actually really making effort here for me. You know, I'll reciprocate and I'll go along to this, this dad's workshop group thing. You know, as lame as I thought it sounded at the time. Um, but just that invite there and the way that he went about that was definitely the, the catalyst. Just to finish this off, Rowan, when you, you know, when you've sat down and you've talked to people about your research and you sort of explain to them what a neat is and you get past all that sort of stuff, I mean, what are the what are the takeaways that you hope to leave people with out of this research? What you hope can change in terms of the way that people think about um, sort of the, the problems that are facing youth um, when it comes to employment and stuff like that at the moment? I suppose uh, one thing I hope people take away from the conversations around the paper and, and around this question of youth and facing the in recession in these um, challenging times um, really goes on flows on from what Ryan was sharing there about trying to move beyond the, some of the stigma that we attach to young people being we all hear that so much the rhetoric of uh, let's boot them off the couch that like, people young people are lazy yeah, harden up. yeah they need to harden up they need to just summon almost from within themselves the kind of willpower to actually just work um, but we need to kind of stop that kind of language and it makes for good kind of rhetoric and it might sound, sound good to older generations. But it's a bit, So we need to kind of switch on to actually young people are facing um, particular challenges and we actually really owe them our attention and our, and our care in part because they are, as they are our future. So we're going to be relying on them they to be... They are the future taxpayers. <laughs> they are our future taxpayers. We've just seen the biggest... Um, our, our national debt sort of blow up um, to, to pay for the to, for, to essentially get us through this economic crisis. Um, those young people are the ones who are going to be saddled with that debt. So we owe them a special care, working and, and sort of journeying with our young people. So I suppose it's something, you know, listeners and readers of the paper should really think about, well, where are the young people in my, in my community and how, how can I be involved um, and and supporting the good work of organisations like like Wise, um, and um, and Maxim. <laughs> oh, <beautiful laughs> if I can put us in the same um, in the same uh, category. Thanks for joining us for this month's podcast. To check out more of Maxim's research, analysis, and commentary on the big issues facing New Zealand, head to our website maxim.org.nz, where you can sign up for Forum, our monthly email newsletter. We're also about to release the latest volume of our annual magazine, Flint and Steel, Volume 7, on recovery, repair, and reconciliation. To pre-order your copy, head to flintandsteelmag.com, where you can also browse all the articles from our previous volumes. From all of us here on the Maxim Institute team, Matewa, goodbye for now.